Morning, everyone. Now, I hope that wasn't too uncomfortable for anyone. But if it was, I'm actually going to push you a little bit further. No, not right, not right here, right now. So if, you, if, just, if you've just got massively nervous, uh, I'm not going to push you to do something right here, right now. But isn't it good to actually pray for one another? Now, often we say, um, oh, I'll pray for you, and then you feel really bad because next time we see them, we've forgotten to even pray for them at all. And I would encourage you, in your interactions with people, when you see a need, say, can I pray for you now? And I don't just mean amongst your Christian brothers and sisters. If we genuinely believe there is a living and active God, and the people you interact with, if they're talking to you about something, you'd be surprised how many people say yes when you ask them, can I pray for you about this now? There'd be very few people actually do say no. And I've been challenged on that in terms of how I interact with our neighbourhood. As things come up, uh, will I be so bold to actually say to someone, can I pray for you about that? And so I'd, I'd encourage you to consider the same. That's not part of the sermon. You've got that. That's a bonus extra. Full of bonus extras this morning. Okay, we're continuing our series as we're going through an overview of the Bible, his story, God's unfolding plan of redemption. Uh, let us open up in prayer as we depend upon him to do his work within us through his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though the world in which we live in sometimes looks so haphazard, you have had a plan even before the world existed, a plan that centred on the Lord Jesus Christ to unite all things under him. And Lord, we encourage us, we see through the Bible from start to finish, even though humans might rebel and might fail, you continue to reveal more and more of your wonderful kingdom plans for us. And Lord, as we continue to look at your kingdom proclaimed this morning, may you encourage us, may you challenge us, may you see, help us to see the, the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done, but also to what you have given us both now and for the future. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I have a little confession Somewhere deep within me, very much so when I was younger, but even now, there is an inner bogan. When I was younger, my ultimate dream was to own, here comes the confession, put up a little curtain, a Tirana. And there's, I think even there's a little bit of me that if the opportunity was there, I would still go in that direction. Now, just out of curiosity, throughout the week, I looked around on car sales just to get an idea to see what's online for in regards to Tiranas. Here is a 1974 LH Holden Tirana SLR5000 in a putrid colour, may I add. What do you think the asking price is? $285,000. I've lost a bit of my desire to own this particular Tirana. But I can tell you, had I bought one at age 18 or 19, whatever age I did buy my first car, I can guarantee it would have got a good, solid flogging. That was the kind of 18 and 19-year-old fella I would have been. And I think if I owned one now, I'd still feel inclined at least to give it a little bit of a go, not with the kids in the car, of course. But I thought, what would I do with a $285,000 Tirana? Would I still do the same things with it? Well, I'd probably do what the picture's got going. Someone's got it in some fancy shed, all on its own, doing nothing. 
It seems a shame, doesn't it, that something exists and people are just storing it out the back somewhere to look at it and not actually to use it for what it was given for. Now, I understand the concept of collecting, and as a, for some people, it's a wonderful hobby. But I thought, aren't cars to get you places? Is there a point in having something if we don't use it what it's made for? Like today, we're going to focus quite a bit on the work of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, in terms of the Holy Spirit in our lives, does sometimes it looks like something that we have, something that's valuable, but something that's locked out the back, out of sight, and not used for the reasons it was given? Or is it something that is both perceived to be valuable and powerful and actually used for the purposes for which it was given? Now, this is our second last in our series as we go through the overview of the Bible. It's not just a sequence of chronological events, but the idea is to see how the Bible is one united, cohesive story, how it all fits together. There's a common trajectory from start to finish, the kingdom of God. We've used the analogy being a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle box where the box shows you how all of the little parts fit together and how they form one unified story. And right there, slap bang in the middle, is the grand central that we looked at last week, is Jesus Christ. Because God had an eternal plan, according to Ephesians 1.10, to unite all things under him. Today we're actually speaking about, for the first time, about a time in which we live. The time in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And the things we're going to look at, as we have every week, the story so far, where we've come to to get to this point, when are the last days, the kingdom that we have to proclaim, and knowing what we have. So I'll be a bit bit more concise than I may have been in other works in terms of going to overview of where we are so far. But what we've seen from start to end God's plans centre around Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And we've used kingdom as a model from start to finish where God is the king who desires to have a people for himself in his place, under his rule, because under his rule, because he's the good and perfect king, is the ultimate place for blessing. It's what we were created for. And we saw the pattern of that right from the beginning. When God creates everything, that by nature makes him the ruler and owner of everything, So God had his people, Adam and Eve, the first people he created, in his place, the Garden of Eden, and while they lived under his rule, acknowledged him as the rightful king, they had every perfect blessing, relationship perfectly with God, with one another, and even with the creation in which they lived. It remained that way until they stepped outside of God's rule. Until they decided he wasn't worthy of all honour and respect, they decided they'd make their own decisions. We moved to a perished kingdom where as a result of them rejecting God, nobody was God's people. They weren't in God's place. They were removed from the garden. And because underneath his rule was the place of blessing, as they stepped outside of his rule, there was disobedience and curse. Then through a sort of roller coaster of ups and downs, we came to another significant low in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. When the people thought they were so high and mighty, would make a name for themselves, then we see the promised kingdom. 
As God deals with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, gives him a number of promises, speaking of having a people of God who would be Abraham's offspring, how he'd bring them into his place, the promised land of Canaan, and under his rule would come blessing to not only the nation of Israel, but to all of the nations, which in itself was a wonderful good news. But it even had a greater and more fuller wonderful good news, as Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16, that it was not just to the physical offspring, plural of Abraham, but to singular, that through the singular offspring, Jesus Christ, would come the blessing to all nations. Then as we turn to Exodus, we begin with the descendants of Abraham, not in the land, they're actually in Egypt, under, under Pharaoh. And God, as he promised beforehand, has promised to deliver them out of Egypt to be his own people, to lead them into his land again. So God's people are these Israelites. Has them in the place of the wilderness and he temporarily dwells with them in the tabernacle. And God's rule is expressed by the laws which he gives, which as you look at Deuteronomy 28, there is wonderful blessings in obedience to God's laws because God's laws are an expression of who he is and what he desires and what is best for us. Then we have the partial kingdom. Just as it was said beforehand, when they entered the land, they would ask for a king. And they had a monarchy. They had many kings. Now the kings were just like the judges beforehand. Their role was to be a representative of God. They were not an all-powerful authority in and of themselves, but they were rulers underneath God who were to rule according to God's standards and according to God's measures. So again, God's people were the Israelites in the promised lands and God's rule expressed through the law and judges and the kings, which were all to be an expression of God's character and God's nature. But after Solomon died, things went downhill. The kingdom split into two. You have the northern kingdom in Israel, southern kingdom in Judah. The northern kingdom in Israel is taken by the Assyrians in 722 BC and Judah to the Babylonians in both 597 and 586 over two uh, different attempts. And the, the kingdom had gone to all sorts of new lows. But right throughout this series we've seen even at the depths of human rebellion and depravity, God's promises continue to unfold. He's not hindered by the rebellion of people. And through the ministry of the prophets, we see words not only of judgment, but words of hope. That God would assemble of people, a new Israel of all nations, according to Isaiah 49.6. Expression of a new place in temple and a new creation in Ezekiel 40 and Isaiah 65-66. to a new rule and blessing through a new king, a perfect king, and a new covenant. When we did that week, we said, man, it sounds like we're kind of headed towards a climax. And we were. Last week, we looked at that climactic moment in the present kingdom. As the arrival of the king Jesus comes, so also comes the arrival of the kingdom. As Jesus proclaimed in Mark 1, 14 to 15, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is everything you've been waiting for. This is now at hand. And as Jesus is the final goal of all of the promises, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God, find their amen, find their yes in Christ. Just like Jesus explained from all, Moses and all of the prophets 
how all of the scriptures pointed to and found their end result in him. Which isn't a surprise, as he is the central focus of God's eternal plan. That each of these kingdom things we're speaking about, of people, place and rule, Jesus is the ultimate expression of that. We saw how he's the ultimate expression of God's people as being the true fulfilment of everything Israel was intended to be. How he's the true expression of God's place, the base, the true expression of the, the promised land and of the temple. But as God's anointed king and the new giver of life, he's both the true expression of God's rule and blessing. But today we're looking at the period that you and I live in, that time in between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, a time which I'd actually call the last days. But it seems a little bit odd to say we haven't finished the series, yet last week we talked about the present kingdom. And you think, well, if the kingdom is present, if the kingdom has begun, is that all there is? And if so, is it a bit of a fizzer? The kingdom has commenced, but it too awaits a fuller and perfect future expression. In that sense, the Bible speaks of kingdom as being both a present reality and a future reality, or something which is now, but is also at the same time something which is not yet. But we could say that to many things of the Christian faith. I, am, I was saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. My sin has been dealt with, yet sin has not been removed. I still struggle with sin. Death has been conquered, but dead still, death still remains. But in terms of this question, when are the last days? We're not just talking about a period of final months or even a period of final years. The way the Bible uses this expression is to speak about everything from Jesus' first coming till his second. John in 1 John 2.18 goes even finer to say, now is the last hour. And he was writing in the first century. So last days is not in terms of it being a short period of time towards the end, but last days in terms of God's overall plan of redemption, the next thing to happen is his return and the coming of his perfected kingdom. One thing I love about the fact that first John says, now is the last hour... To all you really organised people who get things done way before me, I can say to you, you get your stuff finished in the last hour just like me. But at Pentecost, Peter speaks about this, this prophesied last days from the prophet Joel, saying, this is what was added through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Peter is saying that in the coming of the Spirit there at Pentecost, this is the fulfilment of what Joel says will happen in the last days when God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. Likewise, the writer of the Hebrews in 9.26 speaks about Jesus' appearance and how he was sacrificed at the end of the ages. So these things are called the last days, not because they're the final little minutes in terms of our time schedule, but because it is the era, the last thing, the next thing we are waiting for is for Jesus to return to bring in his perfect and complete kingdom. Jesus spoke in Matthew 24 and 25 the most extensive teaching about his return. And in Matthew 25, he has this to say, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom 
prepared to you from the foundation of the world. When he comes, those who are his, those who he has promised a kingdom, those who he has established the means to enter into that kingdom through Jesus' death and resurrection, when he comes and says, enter, inherit that kingdom that I have created for you before the foundation of the world. Now that comes in Matthew 25 when he's talking about the sheep and the gates. Like he's said now to those on his right, this is what happens. But then those who are the unrighteous, those who are on his left, those who have not received the righteousness of Christ that is available to us through faith in him. Remember, as we've gone through this series, there has always been blessing to be under God's rule. But there's also been curse when we step outside of his rule. And so Jesus went on to say in verse 41, Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now Jesus didn't say that to you know, freak people out or to, to scaremonger them into doing something. He said it because it was reality. Now you and I know it's not something any of us like to say. Matter of fact, it annoys me when you see Christians who seem to delight in saying things like that. But it's reality. Like, I hope that in no point in my life do I ever need to turn to any of my kids and say, move, you're about to get hit by a truck. If I ever do need to say something like that, I guarantee you I'm not going to say I enjoy doing that. But if the reality of my situation is that's what's going to happen, you can guarantee I'm not going to be silent and I'm not going to be stationary. Because it's important. The reality, as uncomfortable as it is, needed to be proclaimed. Jesus spoke about it because this is reality. We are born with sin. He is our ruler. We're the one. He deserves all honour and our praise. But we've stepped outside. We've all rebelled against the king to whom we belong. And there is consequences. There is judgment. And we therefore must proclaim and declare what Jesus has done to deal with that. If you just stop and say, this is bad news, this is what's going to happen, there's no love in that. The love is showing what Jesus has done. This is not where we have to be headed. God had such a concern for people who rebelled against us that Jesus came into this world and he bore our punishment so we don't have to. That's what he's calling each one of us to. So there is a kingdom and there is a king that needs to be proclaimed. As we've said, kingdom is kind of like a central motive throughout the Bible. The Bible speaks of this gospel as being the gospel of the kingdom. And it's an expression, it's the gospel, it's the good news of how we become God's people in God's place, under his rule and experiencing all the blessings of being underneath his rule. When Jesus was speaking about his return in Matthew 24, he says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What he's saying is, what will characterise this world between his first coming and his second is that his gospel of his kingdom will be proclaimed. That's what should be happening between the two. And because that was his plan, that is his goal, it's no surprise when he turns to his disciples in commissioning them in Matthew 28 to say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
This here is the primary mission of the church. When I say the primary mission of the church, I don't mean the primary mission of paid ministers or the leadership. The church means the people who belong to Christ. The church is not this building. The church is the people united in Christ. This is my call. This is your call to go and make disciples of all nations. This discipleship training school that we've been doing in our community groups and also the material that we've got available online is to help us to kind of recapture something at the heart of what God has called us to. Not to achieve God's mission by our ways or our abilities. I think if anything, as we've gone, begun to go through this series, we've probably felt quite lacking in ability. But we've been reminded it's not dependent upon us. We need to stop giving excuses based upon who we are and what we can and can't do. It's God's mission by his way, by his power. Hence why when you see the equivalent of the Great Commission in Luke's Gospel and also in Acts, Jesus says to his disciples, but wait, stay here until you receive power from on high. If you think just by me telling you to go, you can go out and do it with your cleverness, says that'll amount to nothing. Jesus clearly said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Another Greek insight, the word for nothing means nothing. And at Pentecost, that power came. That power that was promised in the Holy Spirit. Which also fulfills part of Jesus' promise in the Great Commission when he says, and I will be with you to the end of the age. In Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 33, Peter's making it very clear where all of this that they are seeing before them has come from. This Jesus God raised up, and of this we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter wants it to be abundantly known to everybody who is there. What you are seeing there is not Peter and Peter's work and Peter's miraculous works or his fine words. This is what the Spirit of God at work in his people looks like, he says. And there are significant things to to look at at the Pentecost. When we see the Spirit come upon the apostles, the most natural outworking, you'll see this throughout the entirety of the book of Acts, which I'm excited to start preaching through after after research when we come back to that, is that the natural outworking of the infilling and receiving the Holy Spirit is the bold proclamation of the good news of the gospel. Also at Pentecost, we see the reversal of what happened in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, where languages were confused, people were divided. Here where people from all tongues and tribes are gathered together and the apostles spoke in tongues, but people heard it in their own natural language. And they came into the faith, people from all different nationalities and backgrounds, 3,000 in total on that day. At Pentecost, we see the beginning of the church. The people of God from all tribes and nations being united by the Holy Spirit. And at Pentecost, we see the coming of the power that makes it possible for the good news of the gospel to spread and transform the world in which we live. Now, throughout this week, I was at an event um, Thursday night, the Gospel Movement Forum. It was a group of uh, Christian leaders around Toowoomba, some of them presenting the things that they're doing to engage the lost here in Toowoomba, and it was a wonderful thing to be part of. It was such a diverse range of different churches expressed there, but all with a unique passion to use their strengths and their distinctiveness to reach the lost within the town in which we live. 
It's good to see churches working together. It's good to see that regardless of the little things we, that we differ on, we all know we, people need the good news of the gospel. This period between Jesus' first and second coming sometimes gets called the church age or the age of the Spirit. Not called the age of the Spirit just because it's the time in which the Holy Spirit arrived, but it's the time in which God will bring his kingdom and grow his kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit who regenerates people, who helps us to see our need of a saviour, who convicts us of our sin. And through his work, brings in the visible elements of God's kingdom in the world in which we live, that God would have a people in his place under his rule and blessing. We see a proclaimed kingdom, speaks of God's people as the church, believers from all nations united by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And because they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they are the expression of God's temple. And as we come unto the Lordship of Christ by faith in him, and are indwelt by the very presence of the Holy Spirit, we enjoy his rule and all of his blessings as we live under his rule. But I think the biggest danger when we talk about the Holy Spirit is it can be very much like when we talk about Jesus' death and resurrection becomes so familiar, something we've heard over and over again, and we can become complacent. We can become sort of distant. Now, I think we need reminding. I know I constantly need reminding. Who is it that lives within us? When we come to faith, we know that we're told in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when you believe we receive the promised Holy Spirit. But sometimes I think, not in our minds, but in our actions, we treat the Holy Spirit like we treat a library card. Now, you might think that's a ridiculous comparison, and it should be a ridiculous comparison. Now, if you're like me, just, just so we can enter this, if you're like me and you don't go anywhere near libraries, just pretend for a moment, use your creative imagination. A library card, what does it do? It shows you belong to something. And correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't been one for a long time. It gives you access to stuff. And there possibly may be some other little perks. Is that really how we think of the Holy Spirit? That it just somehow it's God's mark that we belong to Him, gives us access to God and a couple of extra little little perks on the side? Is that really what we think of the Holy Spirit? I don't see me anyone walking into a crisis situation, say, "Got my library card. Stop doing what you're doing." I'd love to try it one day there. Or if I'm trying to compel somebody to do something or believe something, I don't just think, better slip that library card in my back pocket. Now, I don't think there's a single Christian who in their mind would intellectually deny the power of the Holy Spirit. But can I stop and remind us for a moment who it is who dwells within us? Now, the basics of Christianity... The Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All eternal, all equally God. Who lives within us? The Holy Spirit. It's not like there's one Holy Spirit sort of divided up into however many Christians there are in the world and everyone's got their own little tiny fragment. Anything less than the fullness is not the Holy Spirit. That's what lives in you. The Holy Spirit. If you belong to Jesus, that's who lives in you, the very power of God. 
As Jesus taught his disciples, they, they know that he said that he's about to leave them. They're worrying, how are we going to go on in life without you? Jesus said to them in John fourteen sixteen, And I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, on the surface level of reading English, you think, oh, good, he's just giving us a little assistant. But there are two Greek words that can be translated another. One is heteros, which is where we get our word heterosexual, which means another of a different kind. Or the other one, which is what is used here, is alos, which means another of exactly the same kind. So when the disciples are worried, how are we going to go without your presence here with us? Jesus says, I'm going to send you another helper exactly the same. Now, when Jesus promised that I will be with you to the end of the age, this is what he had in mind, the sending of his spirit, one exactly the same, the spirit of Christ dwelling within his people. And I encourage you to ponder and think about this daily. The fullness of God's Holy Spirit, if you belong to him, lives in you. Not a bit of it. The Holy Spirit lived within you. When you read through Acts chapter 2 and you see the outpouring of the work of the Holy Spirit, you see all of the things that happen there. You see 3,000 people come to faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what's, it, that's what's living in you. When you read in Romans 8 and 11, where you see that the Spirit raised Jesus Christ from the dead and you think, what a powerful and mighty thing. That Spirit lives in you and I. When you see a massive transformation of a, of a friend you know who's a Christian and you've seen just the way that God has turned them around so dramatically, that same spirit lives in you and I. And I think if we rightly had a full view of who lives within us, who the Holy Spirit is, surely that's got to make a difference about how we live. When we're called to be a people who go and make disciples... And we think, nah, that's not me. Remember when poor old stinky fisherman Pete's up there and through his work, because of the working of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people came to faith. I can't say that's likely to have happened in my life, but I shouldn't be surprised if something did. As though God somehow, Holy Spirit does little stuff now. The same Spirit who gives us gifts to serve the church and build up the church is the same spirit who will use those things to build up the body. As Christians, we are called in Romans 8.13 to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the spirit. That same spirit that had the power to raise Jesus from the dead is working with us and his desire is to help us to put to death the things that belong to our old nature. Yet when we find we're dealing with our sin, we often say, I'm just not self-disciplined. We give excuses that come down to our personality and how much it all depends on us and how little we trust and depend upon what we've been given, the resource by which we are supposed to be putting to these things. I'm never going to put to death the stuff that, that defines my old nature by trying harder. I can't do that. The one who's calling us to proclaim a kingdom into a lost world He's with us. His presence with us. The very Holy Spirit lives within us. And you know what? We don't need to depend upon our skills, our abilities. 
He convicts. He regenerates. He points us to Christ. He sanctifies. He illuminates the scriptures, not us. I want us to remember who lives within us. Remember who we are as Christians in Christ. This is a kingdom to be proclaimed between his first coming because the second time he comes, he's coming either to call those who have trusted in Jesus' provision for our salvation and say, inherit this kingdom, or there will be an eternal division from those who do not. The king is returning. Everything that he secured in his first coming will come to its completion in its second. We will no longer struggle against our sin. There will be no death. There will be no struggles. There will be no more pain. It will be perfect. It will be complete. And that's what we'll look at in our next and final week, the perfected kingdom. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're sorry for the times that we unintentionally sometimes depend so heavily upon our ability. And we rely so little on what you have given us to be our helper. And not just a small, insignificant assistant helper, but the very fullness of the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us. He desires to work within us to carry out your mission, to put to death the things of the flesh. We're not under-resourced for anything that you call us to but we, we admit that at times we look in all the wrong places. That sometimes even though we intellectually know who your spirit is and the power of your spirit, we live in such a way that expresses something very different. Help us to know what you've provided for us. Help us to, to live a life uh, that demonstrates to others of what it means to be in Christ. Uh, teach us, grow us. Not for our glory, but for yours alone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.